Mr. Derek Vienhoff. He's better known as Deke. Drinking liquor with DJ Deke, we out laughing. Yeah, Deke. David Robert Grimes is a physicist and cancer researcher at the University of Oxford. He also writes for the Irish Times and The Guardian. So, David, thanks for being on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. So, the thing that I found you from was, uh, I believe, on the BBC radio years ago was, uh, or rather, it wasn't that long ago, 2016, when you came up with The Viability of Conspiratorial Beliefs, a paper that you wrote which describes how uh, how much time would pass before these popular conspiracy theories would be uh, let let known to be false based on the number of people involved? And you made mathematical, ma- mathematical models of this and portrayed it in this paper. Do you want to give a little background on what sparked you to write that and, and sort of the, what was involved in coming up with that? Absolutely. So my background is that I turn into debunking pieces. It's not necessarily what I want to do, but you might get a story that say someone denies climate change about something and they, they've misconstrued part of climate science. So a lot of the kind of pieces I would write then would be correcting um, misunderstandings. But when I started doing science writing and, and science broadcasting, I was very much naive. And I thought that the whole problem was an information deficit problem. It's just that people didn't have the information. I had totally neglected the psychological component when people really believe something. And when you, when you challenge their worldview, to some people, that, that they take that as a challenge to themselves of the very essence of what they believe. And when you're faced with a decision, you either can update your ideology, which is hard to do, or you can attack the messenger and deny the message, which is cognitively much cheaper. So when I started writing, um, I, I, I wasn't prepared for the kind of hate mail I got. And I started getting these outrageously angry pieces in response to pieces I wrote that I really didn't think should have generated any aggression. Like I wasn't insulting anyone. I wasn't having a go. And as I got more into it, I realized the common thread that people would use, whether I was writing about fluoridation, whether I was writing about climate change or, or cancer research, was that people would come back to this common mantra that scientists are involved in a conspiracy. And that to me is interesting because, of course, you can just dismiss it and go, well, that's idiotic. Because trivially, I mean, since the 1500s, Machiavelli described conspiracies as a dumb idea because it's just too hard to keep track. But you have to also acknowledge then that People are a bit wary and they're a bit, you know, they're not stupid, but they also are very cynical. So what I decided to do with the paper was kind of play devil's advocate. I took scientists, scientists are an interesting group because say say a political conspiracy theory where in theory you could just make the people that know smaller and smaller, that group, right? And very hard to prove. In science, that would be almost impossible to do. For example, if I'm trying to cover up climate change and it's a hoax, you would actually have to have every scientist working in that field complicit in that hoax because by definition, scientists are falsifying information. They're testing theories. So that actually was a nice experimental ground because then what you can do is you can get a number and say, right, I need this many thousand people to be complicit and if I give them all this success or or odds of failure, what actually happens in the long run? And that's the, the basic idea of the model was a very simple statistical model where you say, right, every intrinsic actor in this conspiracy 
has a very, very low chance of either accidentally or intentionally revealing the conspiracy. And even if we give them the best odds in the world, it turns out you just can't make large groups of people keep a secret for a long time, as is probably intuitive. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's what for the... For the, let's say the person who's never heard of these, like there are people out there who haven't heard of, you know, the flat earthers or the, the they maybe they've heard of the vaccine or the moon landing hoax. But some people you say, oh, people, you know, don't think we went to the moon, and they say, what really? I've never heard that. And those are the people who you just were touching on who might just they're dismissing it automatically almost because it's so far fetched. But like just to give an example of what your paper goes over, um, you touch on the moon landings, climate change, vaccination, uh, the fact that vaccination is dangerous and that there is a cure for cancer being suppressed by vested interests. And um, most of them basically between three and four years would have been uh, found to be not true. Is that correct? That number is a very optimistic number because one of the things I did in the parameter estimations for the paper is because I was playing devil's advocate, I said, let's go crazy. And I, you know, I say it in the paper, I'm like, look, I'm going to give unrealistic secret-keeping ability to people. I'm going to make these people better secret-keepers than the NSA. Because what I really want to show, I, I really wanted to find a situation where maybe you could have a conspiracy. That, that, to me, would have been interesting. I didn't think it was possible. But it turns out that no matter what you do, even if you're really optimistic, you're talking about a few years at best. And in reality, if I had been more realistic, you'd be talking about days or weeks. Like, it's just too many people... And, and then okay, the, the response to that is people, oh, they could compartmentalize, they could hide it away. But my retort would be, in science, you really can't do that. If I go out with the, the most fraud in science, and unfortunately there is fraud in science, is detected by fellow scientists who see someone's result and go, I don't believe that result, and they retest it. The only way you could keep a secret would be with mass complicity. And if you've ever dealt with scientists as you, as you have, we can't agree on anything trying to get them all to the only thing we can agree on is data and that's only if it's totally unambiguous about everything else we can argue we're very good at it yeah like what allegiance would some uh, some scientist in ireland have to some guy in australia that uh you know comes up with something oh i'm gonna become complicit in this random person's findings that i have no they're not family they're not a friend they don't you know and and the, like seven hundred thousand people would have had to be involved to to create a climate change hoax. Oh, oh and, that, and that's and that's that's an underestimate. Right. I, I, I kind of just took all the numbers. That, okay, that's the minimum you'd need to sustain this fiction. And it, 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 if you think about it, I mean, even in so, so my, my sympathy to people was conspiracies do exist. We know it. Yep. People know about Watergate. They know. I mean, we we're currently looking at a massive Trump investigation. The, the, the kind of the, the the skepticism and the cynicism of the general public is understandable. What I kind of wanted to do was, was gradually ease people in, show, look, even if we look realistically and assume that might be the case, here's why it probably isn't. Yeah. Because like you, like you said, it's very easy, for, it was very easy for me to dismiss a lot of the stuff that, um, in that paper. I would have always thought, oh, that's so trivially obvious. And then you come across people that really, really believe it, and sometimes to their detriment. I've had... Um, because I work in cancer research, I've come across patients who genuinely do not trust the chemotherapy drug they're being put on or the radiation therapy they're being put on and insist that there obviously is a big conspiracy and they'd be, be therefore they'd be better off taking herbal medicine or, or homeopathy. And unfortunately, that kills people. And, I, I, and, and the vaccination one's another classic example that kills people. 
And I just don't want to see people falling into that. But I think the best way to address that was to show them that the argument doesn't really make sense without patronizing them, without rolling my eyes to heaven, yeah. was to take their complaint seriously mm-hmm. and then see what we could do with it. Because, Of course, as you can imagine, the conspiracy theorists didn't like it very much. No, but. and I can understand the thought process behind, oh, chemotherapy, is it, is it, you know, it's a terrible thing to go through having Absolutely. people I know going through it. It's a, you know, it's devast- it can be devastating, the side effects, but... Um, you know, I have family members that have recovered f- and, and uh, from using chemotherapy, and it's saved their lives. Like, I mean, it's it's not. I don't need to give an anecdote for people to realize that that it's a it's a thing that works. Now, what is the what is the least crazy thing from an alternative medicine or or uh, alternate thing that that sort of works or could help in conjunction with? Is there anything out there that these people are putting forth that? that you think might have led them to that path of, of, you know, conspiracy thinking? Like, is there anything that sort of has some truth to it as a treatment? As a tr- so I can answer your question in two ways. Yeah. So what's often thrown in as alternative medicine is some herbal medicine. But I would make the distinction that herbal medicines actually do have biological effect in a lot of cases. In fact, if you look at medicine as it is now, it was originally that we noticed an active component in subject or herb or preparation had a, had a positive effect. The classic example is aspirin. When people noticed that willow bark or the people chewing willow bark used it for pain relief, and then we, we, we isolated the particular chemical and, and we synthesized it. And that's traditionally actually how medicine even works now. You have pharmaceutical companies doing massive explorations to find the next natural molecule because it's much easier than synthesizing one straight off the bat. So, I wouldn't necessarily call that alternative medicine, but that kind of stuff can be potent, can be effective. But anything that's effective can have a downside too. The classic example, for example, is is kava, which is a a root that was used in Chinese medicine an awful lot, but in excess can cause liver failure. Mm. And there was a spate of deaths in London many years ago, and it turned out that uh, people had been taking kava as as an adjunct treatment without telling their doctor, and basically had had liver failure. So... You know, anything that can do you good can also do you harm. Mm-hmm. With the other, I suppose, what, what we classically call alternative medicine, I guess if it makes people feel better. Uh, see, I was, I was giving a talk to, to cancer patients for this the other day, and this came up. So if you're taking homeopathy, and I can tell you it doesn't work, and I've done papers on why it doesn't work. Um, but if you're taking it and it makes you feel better, or it makes you psychologically a placebo effect, whatever, yeah. your symptoms do it, I'm not going to stop you. The only time that I would raise an objection is if you're taking medical advice from, say, your homeopath, and they're telling you to come off your chemo. And unfortunately, that, that kind of stuff happens. I believe it's 86% of homeopaths are anti-vaccination. So if you're just taking this stuff and it's not doing any harm, I'm not going to bat an eyelid. But if, you're, if you suddenly start clinging to this as a medical explanation, and it might potentially do a patient harm, then I would have to readjust my positions here. It is a very hard one, because if anything makes someone feel better, you don't want to take that away, but you also don't want people exploited. Right. Um, Jumping to vaccinations for a moment, this Andrew Wakefield uh, guy, now now you have actually debated with him before? Now, is it? I don't mean to start, start personally attacking him or anything, but I just, I, I watched the um, the Anderson Cooper clip with him, which was, I guess, from when he initially had gotten his license revoked, or when? Yeah, around 2010, I think he yeah. had his license. Um, right, 
taken off him. Yes, and so, you know, in the interview, to Anderson, Anderson Cooper's grilling him, and he's saying, just look in the book, the truth is in the book, the truth is in the book, and isn't that a circular kind of logic on his part? Because we have looked in the book, or the the papers that he wrote and other scientists have as well and then it led to the not only fraud in the study but also the study didn't work and wasn't reproducible now his retort to that was uh it has been reproduced in i think he said 50 countries or something crazy like I, he pulls figures out of his ass i'm not going to I, I i'll tell you you're absolutely right that he's using circular circular reasoning um, Wakefield didn't just make a mistake because mistakes happen in science. Yeah. My God, we've all made them. I've made mistakes. Other people made mistakes. He engaged in fraud and he was struck off the medical register for ethics violations, including unethical experimentation on children, faking results, and, you know, inciting a public health panic. He didn't get kicked out for that, but damn well should have. My experience at Wakefield, um, you mentioned I debated him, and I just want to say, I did, and it never should have happened. Uh. because it's very simple. When someone is that thoroughly debunked, when it is that clear that, and, and they've done that much damage to, to, to public health or whatever, they should not be given a platform. I mean, you don't, for example, invite a Holocaust denier on and say, well, it's just their opinion, let's hear it out, and then put it on an equal footing as a historian who studied the Holocaust, because it makes it seem to the audience at home these are just two equal opinions. In reality, one of them is backed up by facts, and one of them is crazy. There's an Irish comedian called Darren Breen. Uh, he's originally a physicist, and I love the guy. But he has a joke. You don't have, you know, you don't go to a news segment and they go, and here's Barry from NASA explaining this, uh, this, this phenomenon to us. And for balance, we're going to put on Jim, who believes that the sky is a carpet painted by God. You don't set up that debate because it's false balance. Mm -hmm. So I got a phone call from a radio station who I sometimes helped out, a regional, small radio station. And they said to me, oh, we'd love to have you on our show next week for something. And I was like, oh, yeah, and what, what's on? And said, oh, we're going to have you debate Andrew Wakefield. And I said, absolutely not. Like, this, is, this is crazy. You don't give him a platform. And I said, look, I said, I'll come on your show and explain to you why you didn't get the platform and give you the history. I think that's more productive for your listeners. Mm -hmm. And they went, okay, let's think about it. And they came back and said, they rang me back and said, right, he's going on. You can be on if you want, or else we just won't have him a post. And it was a crappy situation to be in. Yeah. Because I was like, well, actually, he shouldn't be on at all. And I, so the, the, the conditions I went on was, I'll go on. If you allow me a minute or two at the beginning, to point out why it's unethical that he's even on the show. Right. And the irony of it is it was, as I expected, it was all sound and fury. He was yelling nonsense, and it's much harder to refute nonsense than it is to, you know, to state it in the first instance. And uh, they cut out the bit at the beginning where I, 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 I lambasted him. Oh. And then the show, so I was like, it, it was a lesson to myself that, yeah. you know, it, it's better to go after the stations that, that do this kind of stuff. But, yeah, I mean... I, I do. I am aware of the false balance problem. I'm sure, many of your listeners are, and I, I did not want to contribute to it. I ended up writing a Guardian piece about it, actually, okay. uh, saying, "Here's how not to do it," and then gave a comparison with another radio show who did it right, who brought me on to talk about why they weren't bringing Wakefield on, which okay. is the correct way to. Yeah, and so we don't have to spend too much time here, but I'm just I, I am perplexed and very interested in what his personal motives are. Is it just that he? had an idea that he believed was true, that there's a link to autism and vaccines, and he's set out to do the study, 
perhaps it, it, it failed and then he, he's cooked the books a bit and then now he just still wants to really believe that he's right. So he's going on these shows and Alex Jones and all these Infowars and whatever and the company you keep, huh? But, uh, <laughs> like, it's it just, you know, it's perplexing because you, and often these guys are well-spoken, and I'm sure he's, before that, must have had some sort of career and, you know, obviously education in his field and whatnot. But then he gets to a certain point where his scientific endeavors are not altruistic. They become hmm. personal and just egotistical. Sure. And you're absolutely right. He was, at one stage, an upstanding member of the medical community, well-educated. If you hear uh, Mr. Wakefield speak, he is very well-spoken. He comes off as authoritative. And I understand why people kind of flock to him. Now, to answer your question, the guy, the best expose of Wakefield I've ever seen was Brian Deere, the investigative journalist. So during the time of the MMR panic, which Wakefield instigated over in the UK, there was a lot of failures on behalf of the media. But one person who did not fail was the investigative journalist, Brian Deere. And Brian kept digging. And uh, he won a lot of awards for this in the end. And the first thing he found was financial conflicts of interest. Uh, he found that Wakefield had been paid by a group that wanted him to testify that the vaccination was damaging long before this particular vaccine was damaging long before the paper ever came out. He was also paid by another group that um, he had a patent on single shot vaccination. So in the UK, the MMR, I'm not sure it's like in the States, is given as a single uh, combined vaccination. He had patented individual ones for measles, mump, and rubella, and wanted basically to commercialize them. Wow. So what actually happened, and this is this is the law of a Streisand effect. So Brian Deere reported on this, and it was it was quite a scandal around 2004. And then Wakefield tried to sue him for defamation. So then it went to court, and then Brian Deere just kept dropping bomb after bomb after bomb, saying, "Actually, you have you're up to your neck in financial conflicts of interest you never declared. In the end, Wakefield had to pay all of Brian Deere's legal fees. So that was his first motivation. Now, why does he keep doing it? Honestly, if I have to speculate, I think he, there was a show on Channel 4 over here in the UK recently. I couldn't watch it because I couldn't log in. I didn't, I tried to put in a fake UK address and it didn't work. Yeah, yeah, you, you gotta, you gotta learn how to use VPNs, man. I'll teach you later. But, um, it was very good, but it did show he's still making a six-figure salary a year from being this person. He's still invited to so many events. Right. And, and having dealt with him, and this is this is the one bit of speculation I will engage with, if I was doing a textbook definition of a narcissist, I wouldn't put him far off it. Right. Uh, his, his self-righteousness, his absolute disregard for the consequences and his determination that he's right he might actually believe his own nonsense that, that's what i was going to ask like does he really believe it or because the fraud would suggest that he uh, doesn't i believe think both it. Okay. i think some people go so deep into i think you can convince yourself that you're correct when right. you're not right but i mean the guy psychologically i would not dare to unpick in fact if he dis disappeared on the face of the earth tomorrow i wouldn't be too upset and i think it might be better <laughs> yes like, if he was never mentioned in the media again, that would be fine with me, too. Yes. Um, so, I, I want I could get into the specifics of the individual conspiracy theories, but I think these things have, have been, you know, debated and debunked and not debunked back and forth. And it's really, if people want to just go look up the stuff yourself. But, like, you know, I always go back to the moon landing thing, and it's like, 
if Stanley Kubrick knew, why wouldn't like this is just a, to give one example of a anecdotal example of, of the larger picture that your paper points out how people cannot keep secrets. If Stanley Kubrick knew, which these people believe that he did, and then he put the information in his movie, like, why would he secretly place it in this film, in The Shining, uh, you know, the door number is the number of the shuttle, or whatever, like, so that you have to That's get, amazing. like, yeah. like, he's putting hurdles up for you to guess what he knows that they would fake this, or was the argument that, like, if if he told people they would kill him, so he put it in the movie so that you know, then it's like, what, so the average person could figure it out, but the guys who might kill him are not smart enough to figure it out? Or, or I, it just... But then that, that's it. But you also think, in fairness, wouldn't it just be much easier, even if that hadn't happened, the, 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 the Kubrick directed the moon landings, to just kill him afterwards? If you're going to go to that much effort. Right. Like, if you're giving these people such nefarious, odious motives, why would they suddenly go, okay, you can make movies and we'll never bet them again. I mean, you, you would, that's not what you would do, but isn't it a lovely story? And I think, and I suspect, that's part of the reason why conspiracy theories are so widely subscribed to. I think they make a simple narrative out of a complex one. Yeah. And I think that they also give you a sense of, dare I say, superiority. If you, when I was younger, I, mean, I, I wasn't a big conspiracy head, but when you're a teenager and you, you hear a conspiracy, you actually do think you are privy to some yes, special knowledge and you feel a little bit special. You're like, yeah. that's what you believe. This, and I, I sometimes, I guess with the Twitter interactions and the social media directions I get, I'm like, I kind of almost detect that arrogant teenager behind some of the accounts. Going, oh, if only you knew. And you're like, well, no. Uh, I guess once you realize how bloody complicated everything is, I actually it's more beautiful, but it's not as easy. Like now when people ask me, what do I know about science? I often shake my head and go, I am a professional scientist and everything is hard. Yeah, Everything is more complicated than it looks. I think a big part of it is with the 90s and the internet becoming a thing and information sort of amalgamating on the internet. That was, at least for me, when I was sort of a teenager and was, you know, would hear about these conspiracy theories. Well, that was the sort of... I don't know if you want to call it golden age of the internet was, you know, Wikipedia was starting, YouTube was starting. So it did feel like there was a new source of information. However, it's not really a new source as it was a new way to get that information. The information has always been out there. Like, like if you send, if you were to, if you send somebody who thinks that we never went to the moon, send them to NASA's headquarters and let them go walk, take a tour through. I bet you something like that might change their mind. They'd say, look at all this infrastructure, look at all these computers, look at all these scientists. I never, I didn't realize, and it sounds stupid, because how can you not realize that thousands of scientists go into their, these, these paths of their career to better science, to, to, to go to Mars, to do all these crazy things, and again, this just all goes back to your paper that you wrote. How can this many people I, do that? Do yeah, that. exactly. I mean, one of the nicest things I got from the paper, now I got dog's load of abuse, as you can imagine, because again, you're puncturing people's bubbles. I had David Icke getting bent out of shape about it, people like that. But I got one email from um, an elderly guy who had been a NASA engineer in the 60s during the, the moon landings. And it was a really sweet email where he just thanked me because he said, look, because I've worked on that project, and I have people doing this crap. And he sent me a scan 
of one of the technical documents associated with the landing signed by a bunch of big names. Like there was there was Neil Armstrong's name in it, and there was uh, Shepard's name. And I was like, he said, look, I thought you'd appreciate this. I'm like, oh, man, I actually do. Because at least one person in the world went, oh, thank you for pointing out what right. I've been trying to say right. for several years. Did you see that Buzz Aldrin punching that yes. conspiracy theorist? Yes, I, I understand how he feels. Can you imagine your entire life's work and there's just some absolute... I don't swear in your show. I mean, I'm, I'm, oh, they are. <laughs> no, no. It's okay. It's implied the audience know. They can fill in their own words. Sure. But there's just this absolute looper who just kept it. And I can, I kind of understand it. He's also kind of badass. you got to give Buzz credit where credit's due. Oh, yeah. But I have to say, there's an, I'm using this expression loosely, but there before the grace of God go I. Because I look back at Teenage Dave, and I remember being about 18, and someone came in and handed me a book. And it was a holy blood, holy grail, right? Now, I'm not sure if you've heard of this book, but it was essentially, it was the Da Vinci Code, but written like it was a fact. In fact, the Da Vinci Code borrowed a lot uh, from it. Yes, I've heard of this book. Yes, my dad used to have uh, it, I think. It's, it's, it's a fascinating book. It was a black yeah, book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it was, it was made into a BBC show back in the 70s and 80s. And if you, when I read it at 18, I went, wow, that's so believable. And by chance... I was telling this, this another friend of mine about it, and he was a historian, and he just laughed, and he said, yeah, that's a well-known hoax. And he talked me through why it was a hoax. Yeah. And I suddenly felt so stupid, but also very grateful. I suddenly went, oh, yeah, and now when you explain it, it makes perfect sense why this is stupid. So I am optimistic we can, if, I, if you can bring an idiot like me around, yeah. I'm sure other people can be brought around. Uh, yeah, but it, it depends. <laughs> it does depend. I, I I think it's, you know, I have some people I know that uh, believe in the flat Earth, and you know, no late, lately with our uh, <laughs> yeah, lately in our friend group, we have these discussions where I'm like, you know, does Jimmy Bob? His name's not Jimmy Bob, but does Jimmy Bob really believe the Earth is flat, or does he just want to challenge you because it's kind of hard to explain how the Earth is round when you're not that well read on it you know what i mean like i can explain to you i know what it looks like that i know how the sort of the the celestial bodies move more or less but uh once you start asking me specifics okay now i'll have to go look it up or or and then they say oh gotcha but you're like no it's not really gotcha it's just take the time to go figure out how the things actually work Mm. but it's hard it is that's a a thing i mean i totally and this is where I think we need to, and I guess I needed to start appreciating human psychology a bit more because I guess I was very much assuming initially information deficit. We could just give more information. And I think one of the things that when you find out stuff is hard and a lot more complex than you had initially thought, you get this cognitive dissonance, this discomfort. And I guess as a scientist, I get this every day. I perpetually walk in and go, oh, good Lord, everything is more complicated than I want it to be. And it can be a sinking feeling. I mean, we've all got it. You know, when you suddenly realize things might be more complicated. And I think there's two approaches to dealing with that. Um, one of which is to double down on what you already believe. Just double down and keep projecting everything else. And the other one is is to, be, to feel that it's okay to feel this discomfort. It's okay that, to change your mind. Unfortunately, in a lot of um, public discourse, People that change their mind are seen as flaky or weak. Yeah. Even in Shakespeare, he, uh, he has Julius Caesar saying that he was as firm and unchanging as the northern, constant and unchanging as the northern star, and that was seen as a virtue. 
changing your mind. We, we call politicians that change their mind, flip-floppers. Exactly. But when the evidence comes in, we should, we should congratulate people that change their mind. We should high-five them because that's really hard to do, but it's vital. So I wonder if we, I mean, this is me spitballing, but I do wonder if we were to take the stigma of changing your mind away and encourage it, yeah. would we win more converts? I don't know. I mean, this is, a psychologist will probably tell me I'm being dumb, but it is. No, it sounds like it makes sense. Uh, I think Sam Harris posted, a, I don't know if he did the study with a colleague or not, or if he just posted it, but there, I know there's been neural imaging of when, you're, when your mind is challenged with an opposing view that there's certain areas of the brain that are activated that I might be getting it wrong, like maybe the ones that feel pain or something. There's some sort of like very emotional uh, area of the brain that's activated when certain certain ideas are challenged. Not all ideas, like, but but very deeply held, whether they're religious, things like that, scientific or whatever. But Sure. Uh, Dan Cannon also did studies on that. He's a guy in Yale, and he came up with this um, thing called, I, I think it's called Identity Protective Cognition, where fundamentally we wrap our perception of selves up into our ideas, which is crazy if you think about it. Our ideas are just ideas. But yet, when we start to make them a belief, they define us in a part. We, we feed into them. So he did an amazing study, which I love, where he um, he gave people a simple kind of maths question, simple issue. It was tricky enough that only sixty people, sixty percent of people, got it right. Where they asked them about whether a skin cream statistically could they work out whether it was better for rashes or worse than rashes, right? And sixty percent of people could do the the problem and get the answer correct. But when they changed, they had secretly stratified the participants by whether they were conservatives or liberals, and particularly if they felt very strongly about gun control. And he found that when they, and his co-workers obviously, when they flipped it around and asked the exact same question, but now about gun control, that you only got it right if it actually already went, with, you, with the numbers they made up, went to what you believed. If you really believed guns make everyone safer, you would only get the question right if, 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 the, if the numbers in the question made it look like guns were safer, and vice versa. If you thought gun control is a good idea, and the problem said guns make everyone safer, you would get it wrong. But if it said, well, gun control makes everyone safer, you get it right. And his argument then, and he did, this has been repeated different ways, is that your ideological bias even affects how we interpret information, which is crazy but makes a certain amount of sense. Yes, uh, odd example, but it always reminds me of when people liked Rick Ross as a rapper and then they, everybody said he was a corrections officer and then everyone's idea of this Rick Ross image in their mind was like, oh, he's not cool anymore because he was a correct... But, like, why can't he be a corrections officer and then go on to be a rapper or a drug dealer or whatever you idolize him for? That's it. was a teacher. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know? But it's like it drives a knife through your heart because... But I think this gets down to an ego thing with everybody. It's a, it's mm. a, it's a very... Uh, you identify with the, with these external things, and and what most conspiracy thinkers' motives should be, and what I often see that they are, but they're just slightly misaligned, is 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 that most of them are sort of altruistic in the beginning. Like they want to know, they they don't want people to be duped. They're they're actually looking out for their fellow man. They they don't want, you know, if they can get it in their head that big pharma or or the government or something is out to get people, then they have this urge to want to help people. I don't think it comes from uh, an ego place, but I think it becomes an ego thing because 
like like we're saying that the, the the beliefs get ingrained and then when people come with the skepticism or the alternative or the or the real facts then they get uncomfortable and that's the ego just trying to just struggling inside yourself to but i think there's this this the ego death is something that we need to focus on more uh, in a in a you know not a real sense of death but a a sense of uh Dying to the moment. Uh, Krishnamurti spoke about this a lot. Jiddu Krishnamurti, the, the philosopher. Dying to the moment, which just to me just means everything you think is... Knowledge is the past. It's all the past. So you ha- every given moment, you should die to the past and accept everything anew. Everything, uh, just challenge that, yourself. That, that, that is interesting. I, I, I would agree with you. One of the other things is this converse of that as well. So I think ego comes into an awful lot. But... As humans, we do have egos. And one of the things I've noticed in discourse, and I guess um, I, I, I always joke that I've once won an award for getting more hate mail than most people. That was the, the Maddox Prize in 2014. Right. But one of the things I've noticed as well, and you've probably seen this, is if you are the bearer of bad news, and by this I mean if you give information that conflicts with something that's very dearly held, you can get people turning on you. And when they're incapable of, of advancing the argument or refusing the argument that you put forward, what I find very frustrating but very common is that they, they poison the well, they attack you. It is much easier to, to straw man a person, attack them, and to try and discredit them than it is to necessarily engage with the actual argument. You could be the worst person in the world and make a very valid argument. I mean, if he was capable of cognitive thought, Donald Trump could make a good argument tomorrow, of course, not being unrealistic. He's not. But at the same time, it should be, everything should be judged on the individual statements you make. I found that that doesn't happen, and I suspect that's kind of the flip side of what you're saying there as well. We should be, you know, not privy to wounded egos, and we should be always willing to keep updating and changing everything. I don't know how we, we make that thing i would love if it was but i'm open to suggestion if anyone has any right um i wanted to turn to for a few minutes like not to give too much juice to your haters but i wanted to go to a couple like comments i found online well there's this one blog that i i don't have the time to read at the moment but it's objective skeptic dot blogs david blog. robert yeah. grimes debunked is that it? it okay so yeah yeah, is, I heard there, that one. is there a Coles notes you can give us of like why? Because yeah. I'm just going to look at this and say I don't believe this guy just based on the way he writes a thing. Now that is probably not scientific of me, but could you give me you an have to gauge. I, I mean, I, I do that a lot. I, I get a lot of these. Um, that particular person, I don't want to say too much about them because um, I think they do have some issues. I, I did actually have to get, they wrote to me a lot and I had to get legal advice to stop them writing oh. to me. Um, but I, I think they have very strong opinion opinions about things. They go after Ben Goldacre as well, the, the, the skeptic medicine writer, author of Bad Science. Actually, I, I always laugh that at one blog post, they put him and me on the same level. And I was like, that's great. That's very flattering to me. Um, but yeah, the, I, I, there's a lot of things like that. And I don't want to dig too much into the psychology of why people do that. It's yeah. fine to disagree. And it's fine to even, like, look... As a scientist, people pick apart my work all the time. I pick theirs apart as well. That's Criticism is good. Yeah. But you do sometimes see people taking it a bit too far, and they decide they're right, and nothing will convince nothing them otherwise. Yeah. And they need a platform to rent. And yeah, that that, that is kind of funny, because I think it's like one of the top Google hits, but it is yeah, unfortunately. absolutely. Look, 
But, you know, one of these days I'll ask them to do a takedown notice. But most people that read it have the same reaction as you had. They go, yeah, I read like three paragraphs of that. And I went, what the hell? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. And yeah. it's not the only post written like that. There's um, plenty of them. So you, you're, I guess your most recent article would be the cannabis one on the health, uh, health.spectator.co.uk? Uh, I had two today. I had the cannabis one and I had the uh, the. the, the the crank autism cures as well. Yeah. Always never rains, but it pours. So I got two pieces in one day. Very hard to advertise. Awesome. <laughs> but maybe we, yeah, I mean, we can explore these a little bit. So, yeah. um, let, let's start with the cannabis one since I got it up here. Um, it's called the rise of the cannabis called don't believe the hype about medical marijuana. Now. Okay. I read this, me having a, you know, objective mind. I, I know there are some benefits in marijuana and I use marijuana. Uh, I also know that there are some problems with it and there's, you know, not the science is not all there. It's not fully studied. There's many things still to be studied about it. And I could basically, before I even read the article, just because what I know of you, I, I, I thought, well, this is probably going to be just a very straightforward, hey, cautionary tale, basically. Let's just go into what these things are and just it's not the end all be all and it's not going to cure you of cancer um but some of the I'll, maybe i'll just skip through the article and i'll just let's refute some of these comments if i don't oh, want to yeah, I, 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 I saw some of the comments today. I mean, again I, like i'm not going to read them i'm just going to say like so okay so let's just quickly go through so this guy says um this guy says oh you're forgetting good doctor it's not just THC. What about CBD? And okay, so you didn't actually go over CBD in there, but that, but that's okay. That's okay. Uh, you, oddly enough, I actually did. The oh, link, you did. See, this, this is why I hyperlink everything. When I write a piece, I hyperlink. So the study I referred to from the National Academy of Science, you see, my argument is, people go, oh, you're not an expert in cannabis. You're absolutely right. I'm not. Uh, I'm a cancer researcher, but this is kind of why I'm interested in it. What I do is I rely on other scientists who are experts, and then I communicate their findings. So to put it straight off the bat, I, I got a lot of people giving me stick that go, oh, you just don't want people to have cannabis. I actually think cannabis is fine. It's it's I there's and I put in the piece, there's really good arguments for, for legalization. Absolute not just decriminalization, there's great arguments. It has proven medical efficacy in three or four conditions and that's fantastic. Now obviously there's caveats to that. If, for example, in nausea it makes some patients worse. Uh, that's why we use it as a last, if we do use this drug in clinical practice already, it's why it's a last final line drug. My issue with, uh, I'll get, we'll get into the comments a bit, but the whole reason I wrote that piece initially was because I have seen patients suddenly believe that cannabis oil will cure their tumors and go off it. There's a current campaign in Ireland, my home country, and we have medical cannabis. As of a few months ago, our parliament, the Dáil, agreed to have it for the conditions which it works. And you get a prescription and you get it. And there's a political party that wants you to have it without a prescription. And the way they're trying to sell that, now if they just want to legalize it, that's fine. But the way they're advertising that is basically this is a miracle cure for epilepsy, it's a miracle cure for autism, it's a miracle cure for cancer. The flip side is once you make bad claims about science and health, even if you do it with good intentions, People die. So there's already people giving up their medication for cannabis oil. And I have seen patients die this year from that. So th that was my motivation for writing it. You go down to the, the comments and you see people cherry-picking studies. Yeah. The reason I linked to the NAS study is the NAS is a review of 10,000 studies. It's not... I can go on to any junk journal and plenty of the journals they're linked to. I saw the comments earlier on one or two. If they're a predatory publisher, it's not science. It's basically vanity publishing. Uh, and if you go through it, 
you'll see that they were very fair. They said, look, this is good evidence for this, no evidence for that. And like any scientific report, they said, needs more study. I'd agree. I certainly don't agree with people suddenly going, this cures cancer. This is, this is a miracle thing, because I wish it did. Yeah. If it did, and I could quit my job tomorrow, you've no idea how happy I'd be. But unfortunately, I can't. <laughs> Yeah, no, no, no. That's an interesting point you bring up of quitting your job tomorrow if they found a cure for cancer. Because I, I was spoken to my friend the other day uh, who is researching HIV. So he just finished uh, uh, his PhD and he's going over to Vancouver to to work on HIV research. And so, yeah, we brought this up. You know, you know, if they do come up with a miracle cure for any of these things, well, what do the people do the next day? Well, they don't. They uh, they actually don't kind of quit their job, right? Because there'd be how do we disseminate the cure better? How do we like research how to make it cheaper? There's all these different things that you would continue to do in your career. There's even if always more to do. Yeah, you're right. But I also, I mean, it would be nice. I have I have a load of interests. I, I you've seen some of my other papers have been on guitar physics. Yeah. And, you know, ultraviolet radiation. I have loads of things that interest me. If tomorrow I didn't have to do the, the air encounter was was done. There'd be other intellectual challenges sure, to move on to, sure. and there'd also, like you say, still be a lot of work left to do, because you don't suddenly just click your fingers and now cancer's cured everywhere. You'd have to disseminate that. You'd have to improve it. But I wouldn't mind. It's just, right. it's, it's, I don't think in our lifetime that will necessarily be the case. I would love to be wrong. I would love to be wrong, but I, I'm not sure. Yes, and this person says cyanide and plutonium are also naturally occurring, but unrestrained ingestion would be unwise. That was a quote that he's quoting you, and he says comparing cannabis with plutonium for any reason is more of a political stunt than a scientific analogy. Well, so, I, I love the, the what politics am I putting forward there? Yeah. The reason I was being flippant, but I was being flippant, and you probably caught what I was going for there, was a naturalistic fallacy. The idea that if something comes from the earth, yeah. It's good for you, and if it's synthetic, it's bad. Yeah. It's a nonsense argument. I didn't have the word limit to go into why it was a nonsense argument. Because it's but all chemicals, I, right? Things are like... Everything's a chemical. chemical. Yeah. yeah. Like if we make a medicine out of a natural plant, we find, for example, cannabis, we talk about THC. Yeah. We take out the active molecules, we synthesize them, or, you know, you can... But there's people that... I've talked to you about this, and we were talking about testing THC in the lab on cancer cells, and their argument was, yeah, but it's more natural if you smoke it in a joint, and it, it has more of a biological effect. And I said, yeah, but you realize that argument doesn't make any sense. Like, if it has an effect, it's not some kind of uh, essentialistic property of it. There's something in it that does that. So that's what chemists do and biochemists do all the time. They're isolating these things and testing them. Uh, but there's really a lot of people that believe because it's natural by whatever definition, and that's an arbitrary definition yeah. if there was one. Yeah. I mean, the crops we eat today, you can argue they're natural. We still naturally selected or genetically modified them yeah. for centuries. So it's a kind of nebulous definition. But the people make that argument. So I throw out the plutonium or uranium or the arsenic ones because these are all cyanide. These are all naturally occurring. Yes, and that is lost but, on these commenters, obviously. This, this stuff goes over their heads and they just want to, they're, they're like these people we're talking about. They just want to be heard or whatever. Who knows why they're commenting. And so um, maybe we could go into your, your specific cancer research. Uh, I was reading a bit of it and it has to do with oxygenation. Oxygenation? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, well, it is indeed. Um, and so what was I going to ask? So is it the, the effect of oxygen on actual tumor growths? Is that your specific area of research? A, a bit of both. So 
Often, like uh, I, I can see your question. I'm not sure, sure if your listeners will see your face on this, but yeah, uh, no, it's I audio, your, but that's okay. I saw your questioning eyebrow there, but it absolutely is an interesting thing. So when I say what I do, people uh, initial reaction is oxygen cancer. What's the story there? And I'll try to give a very brief, concise definition of what, what matters. So it turns out that oxygen does, as you say, have a very big role in how tumors grow. It's an essential micronutrient. And it shapes the evolution of the tumor in a big way. The other thing oxygen does is it has a very potent effect on therapy. So radiation therapy, for example, is up to three times more effective, three times more cell kill, if you have a lot of oxygen present. If you have very little, you have to give about three times the dose with conventional photon therapy to, to boost to get the same amount of cell kill. And there's, I mean, I, I've done a few a few papers on the reasons for that, what the, the, the molecular, there's a lot of nice physics there. Sure. The other part of I do is I do a lot of oxygen modeling because we also know that tumors that are low in oxygen tend to be more likely to develop a metastatic phenotype. So some of the cells in that niche appear to become nasty a lot earlier. And it's metastatic cancer that tends to kill people. A primary tumor located to a single organ, the exception maybe of the brain, is usually quite easily easily treated if you know where it is. Or you can surgically wipe it out and then you can clean up with radio chemo and you're kind of done. And sorry, metastasizing is, can you explain that again? Oh yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, cancer that is metastasized has learned to live in an environment that shouldn't. So if your primary cancer was, say, your kidney, and it's learned to live in your lung, it's a stage four cancer. It's metastasized. It has it has gone on a walk, either through your blood vessels or your lymph nodes or okay. something, and it's ended up where it shouldn't. And the problem with those kind of cells is that they have... Uh, and it, it's actually it's great thing of ex, a brilliant example of evolution in action. I mean, a horrible example of evolution in action. Those cells evolve... To do that, they develop like if you took a kidney cancer cell normally and stuck it in someone's lung, it wouldn't it wouldn't take strong environment for it. But when they've learned to exist where they shouldn't, maybe in a hypoxic niche, so a low oxygen area, maybe in some other crucible of selection pressure, like a Darwinian selection pressure, they can end up becoming nasty. And once they're nasty and mobile, tumors are a problem because they're very hard to wipe out. If a tumor spread to different places. It's got the ability to be footloose. Yeah. You know, it's a, and then once it's footloose, it's a real bastard to treat. So that's always trying to just diagnose it before, before it's on, a, on the run, before it's going through your body where you, you can no longer save that person because it's just spread. Well, it, it makes it much harder, and you're, and you're looking then rather like stage four cancers are generally hard to cure if, if at all possible. What you can do, and I think what one day will be the future of cancer therapy, is you can stave it off, stave it off before it has any real real bad effects. I do believe that one day cancer will be a chronic condition. I don't think we'll have a single cure, but I think like your friend in HIV research, you'll be able to manage the condition, relatively minimal intrusion, and live your life. Because unfortunately, cancers seem relatively inevitable given the amount of DNA damage we accumulate eventually. We're quite vulnerable. The longer we live, the more vulnerable we are. But I would love to see a day where we can walk in and go, oh, I've got cancer again. I'll take the pills and right. you're fine. Right. That'd be great. Well, if we could cure it, even better. Yeah. But if we can get that far, that's a major accomplishment. That's hang up your hat time. Yeah. Good job. Mission accomplished. Yeah, you know? exactly. So when they say, when you hear, you see a stupid Facebook link, somebody posts, your your second cousin posts something and it says, uh, 
there's a new berry they found in the Amazon and it cures cancer. So again, I keep I feel like I'm just debunking these things that are so, sound so stupid, but let's no, just, but they're really common. I yeah. mean, they're, they're so common that it, it's it's. So uh, let's it, give them the benefit of the doubt for a second. Okay, there's a berry in the Amazon. It cures cancer. Um, is there argument that everybody who's currently putting people on chemotherapy and whatnot is somehow like their jobs are there for, you know, their jobs would stay, the, the infrastructure stays, the government keeps making money or big pharma keeps making money because they, they, I don't know, throw these guys off a cliff or something in the Amazon or hide the berries or whatever they do. I don't like, it, it, yeah, I mean, I guess there's, there's twofold confusion there. So the, there's the conspiratorial confusion and there's the actual diversity of cancer confusion. I'll go through the conspiratorial one first. Sure. Um, the conspiratorial one is that, yeah, it, 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 you know, Big Pharma, they're, they're not going to like that. If Big Pharma found a single thing that cures cancer, they would make they a would mint of it. it. And people say, well, they can't patent it. Of course they can. They patent naturally occurring things all the bloody sure, time. Yeah. That's what they do. Yeah. They, they learn to synthesize it. They learn the active component. They get the rights to it, and they sell it. They would be minted. And they would permanently be able to sell it because people will always get cancer. It would always be a product that would sell. Yeah. So if they had anything, even if it didn't cure, even if it cured half of all cases, yeah. that would be, they'd be rich for the rest of their career. be yeah. brilliant. So I don't think that's very likely. What I also would point out, though, is people misunderstand how complicated cancer is. Yes. So we think cancer is this you know, monolithic single entity. Cancer is an entire family of diseases. Right. And more than that, because they arise from mutations in you or mutations in her or him, they arise intrinsically from us. They are mutated versions of ourselves. Right. So every cancer is not only specifically weird, it's specifically weird and catered to you. And that makes it really hard to treat because your reaction might be different than mine. The cells that, that arose in might be different. And we can roughly quantify them into families of cancers. But you'll even notice different cancers have different prognosis. If you're given a thyroid cancer, yeah. I can say, okay, there's 98% chance you'll still be alive in 30 years. Yeah. If you're diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, there's not a chance in hell I can give you the same odds. You know, just And even then, those odds are for a collection of lots and lots of people an individual, the survival statistics are entirely different. It's so idiosyncratic, and I think that makes it scary. I think when people share those links, it's kind of reassuring, isn't it? Hey, we've got this cure, and I can use it, and, and that now I'm safe. And unfortunately, I mean, I hate to burst people's bubbles, but no, we're all vulnerable to cancer. Over half of us in our lifetime will get it, mm. and we're all virtually guaranteed to be close to someone that gets it. So... What we need to do is be realistic and work towards better treatments, better cures, better care. Yeah. Maybe this kind of brings you to something I was going to bring up earlier was uh, keeping society healthy. That is the goal of any government or an organization or big pharma, whatever you want to call it. I mean, I know there are people who think that they're always going to believe that there's some nefarious goal, goal of a small group of people, right? But people talk about government control and government like i think you need to control people but the control doesn't mean like like a sci-fi villain controlling your mind it's control is to make sure things go right to to keep people alive and keep people safe and 
could you expand on that a bit? Like the the fact that that's that's the tr- that's what's true is that medicine and doctors and scientists are out there to make life better and to keep people healthy. And a healthy healthy society means a a, a properly running society, not a broke society, a well off society. Because a health you can work, you can the economy is more robust, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Could you expand on that? I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I absolutely couldn't agree with you more. Uh, I do find that you will occasionally get people that don't believe that. I'm not, I'm not sure when this is going to go out, but today, apparently, the, the woman voted Miss America this year said that she felt health care was a privilege and not a right. Now, I'm, I'm talking to a Canadian. You guys have a good health care system. Not bad. But, hey, not bad at all. It's pretty <laughs> good. Uh, I, I've been injured in Canada. I've seen how good it is. But You're welcome. I've also, I've also been injured in the States and been glad I was insured. I'll put it that way. But... Um, it's. I think politically, some people. I, I would agree with you. I think it makes actually financial sense to have a good healthcare system. It's worth the investment. But you do come across people that don't. Uh, I think they're called Republicans. But <laughs> um, it, it's a weird one. But does that come down again to ideology? Does that come down to some people almost employing this kind of quasi misunderstanding of Darwinian survival of the fittest nonsense? Because uh, uh, that is, by the way, perhaps one of the most misunderstood lines ever committed to text, survival of the fittest. Yes. It was never supposed to refer to humans, and Darwin himself hated that. And when I see the people that usually say survival of the fittest, and you look at them, and they're usually those obese, unhealthy-looking men, you're like, yeah, you're not the fittest. <laughs> you're the richest. There's a difference. Um, but it's a hard one. I mean, I, I, I wanted this, I mean, I don't want to give you more interesting insight, but I just happen to agree with you. It is what it is, yeah. Yeah, sorry. Not very interesting. No talking point there. <laughs> no, it's just that that's one of the big ones where, I guess to wrap all this up, I think um, what we talk about with people's beliefs, uh, whether their beliefs are about uh, diseases or they're about the government or they're about God or religion, or these kind of things, I think I don't. There's something about belief that is very shallow. It's very your mind makes about one or two neural connections just to come, just to, to manifest your belief, right? The opposite of belief is what you do for a living, which is research and discovering things. Now it takes time, and that's what we're talking about. How it's hard. It takes time, and people. Time is so valuable to people that we'd rather just have a belief. It's easier. Yeah. Yeah. It's no, no, it. it, it it is. It's cognitively. So I'm not an expert on this, but uh, actually, my partner researches this quite a bit. She's a cognitive uh, psychologist, and there is expenses associated with beliefs. So, to and I mean, I, I mean, I, I admit it, it can be exhausting to suddenly look at something that you thought you understood and go, "I actually need to look at that again because I don't, and I need to reevaluate." Uh, I can understand why people go for the simple narrative. But the truth is, like you say, things are complicated. Um, but again, people find it cognitively less expensive to just go with what they already believe and then to seek out evidence that confirms that. So they engage in confirmation bias. Yep. And that's a real problem. And there's some scientists that do it too. And uh, that's how bad science happens. If you, if you go in with a hypothesis and decide only to find evidence that supports it and ignore the evidence that doesn't, you're doing bad science. Yeah. Um, like scientists aren't immune from this either, but hopefully with peer review, it is one of the the the, the gate the, the waykeepers we have that stops that running rampant. It could be better, 
there's always more we can improve. But science is self-correcting. If, if you publish this, eventually someone's going to say, nah, nah, that's wrong. And, the, and that happens all the time. Yep. Stuff in textbooks gets changed every year because someone finds out actually that's wrong. So we change again. And I, I mean, I know plenty of religious people and I come from a religious background originally. Um, and I know people's talking points where they're just confused about what science is, where they'll say science believes this. And you say, no, it's science does not believe anything. Science is a method. It's not a, it's not even a group of people. It's, it's a, it's a tool. It's a, it, so, you know, for listeners, you know, most of the guys who listen to this podcast, hey, they already, they're skeptics or whatever, but some of them might be, you know, into all these crazy ideas. I'm just, just take some time, read a book about one of the things and just, you know, chill out, have a cup of tea and just read and then come back and see what you think. You don't always have to just believe that everybody's out to get you and, and, and you know. Yeah. yeah, you don't have to be right all the time either. And I think when you take that pressure off yourself, to go, to what be right it, all what the time. It, yes. Yeah. When you take that pressure off, and you just go, I, I mean, I my old boss was great at this. He used to often go to me. I, I, he was really knowledgeable about the history of science, and I would, I'm, I'm not bad. And we've been chatting about philosophy of science, and I'd say something, and he very politely said to me, "Actually, no, that's entirely wrong." <laughs> <laughs> then he'd explain to me why, and he was never rude about it, and it was always eye opening. The guy, I mean, if, if he's listening to this, Mike, he was a brilliant boss, um, but he was a brilliant scientist as well, and. One of the things he had was a love of science, and he loved the history of it. So if I said something that was incorrect, which often I did, because I, and you know, the the, the popular concise history of things you you read are often simplifications. So I would say something, and and he would go actually, but he it was never rude, and it was always informative. And if someone has the gift of doing that, it works really well. I know some people object to it. I mean, I've, I've made the mistake of trying to do that with people who are not open to it. But I, for my own part, try to be open to it because there's not a chance that one person on earth can be totally informed about every subject. Yeah. So you constantly have to be open to correction yeah. and you have to be willing to share information with other people too. I mean, it, it's, it should be two-way street. That's so true, and maybe that maybe that's something in science communication that needs to get out there more is to to not always meet people exactly on their level, like flat earthers, or or, or maybe even so, maybe just not not belittle people, but try to be polite and try to give them the information in the least uh, the least Trojan horsey way, <laughs> like no, something that kind of almost meets them halfway and, and and explains it to them in a in a in a, in a sensible way. Uh, where can people find more information? Your Twitter handle is at DRG1985. It is indeed. And I have a Facebook page, which is uh, facebook.com slash, uh, I think it's David Robert Grimes. Um, and that will get you there as well. And uh, if you Google me, you'll find interesting results. Some of them <laughs> you can avoid, but yeah. they're probably the best way to get me. Twitter or Facebook. Um, I'm not fancy enough for Tumblr. I'm not young enough, so All right. like, I tried it once. I couldn't work it out. <laughs> awesome. Well, David, thanks again, and uh, take care. Best of luck in your research, and we'll talk to you soon. Eric, an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Decast. You can support the show by going to decast.ca and finding the Patreon link. Or you can share this episode on social media or tell a friend about it. You could also leave a review on iTunes or leave a comment on SoundCloud. 
Thank you again and tune in next time. Hey, DCAST listeners, this is Trevor Twining from Niagara Podcasters Network. If you want other local Made in Niagara podcasts, then head over to Niagara Podcasters Network. Our hosts are sharing stories and podcasts that are made for Niagara and by Niagara. Hope to see you there. You can find us at niagarapodcasters.org.